This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Yuval Noah Harari. He holds a PhD in history from Oxford University and now lectures at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem specializing in world history. His 2014 New York Times bestselling book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, is published in nearly 40 languages worldwide. His new book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, uses historical and current trends to look at where we might be headed as a species. Welcome to Think Again, Yuval. Hello, it's good to be here. It's really good to have you. So, I mean, we should, I guess, give a bit of an overview. You begin, you begin the book with what feels like a fairly positive uh, situation that mm-hmm. you know you claim with evidence that humanity has conquered in a sense uh, famine and plague, plague and, and war, war. Yeah. yeah so like i mean obviously a lot of, you know a lot of people um, and a lot of people may go wait, wait wait a minute there is war where i am and people mm-hmm. are still dying and so forth but you present some compelling numbers you know mm-hmm. in terms of yeah and then you argue like what, where, you know, what are likely to be our big projects next. Could you talk a little bit about that just to... Yeah, so just about off? famine, plague and war, I personally come from, I live in the Middle East. Yeah. So I know perfectly well <laughs> there are still wars in the world right. and still famine and still plagues. Uh, what I mean is that we have transformed them from uncontrollable forces of nature right. into manageable problems. If there is an outbreak of epidemic like Ebola, in, in 2014, we no longer see it as some judgment from God. We see it as a result of, of human failures, failures of the governments, of the health authorities uh, in West Africa and in the rest of the world. Right. And we take action. And when Ebola began, people thought it would be like the new Black Death, right. which killed a third of human population in, in Asia and Europe in the 14th century. But in fact, thanks to the intervention of the World Health Organization and other other institutions, Ebola killed a total of 10,000 people, which is an awful disaster, but on a completely different scale than the Black Death. Let me me ask, let me interrupt and say, is the world, because what I hear from the medical community and maybe also the World Health Organization is a less sunny assessment of this you know Mm -hmm. i get the sense that there is the risk we hear periodically that indeed we may well have an outbreak of a of a flu of some kind that will Mm -hmm. that will kill you know tens of millions of people worldwide do you think they're just overestimating the risk for the sake of kind of caution no i think there is definitely a risk but we're in a different position than any previous time in history yeah previously in history 
every few decades or centuries, you had the outbreak of a big new epidemic. Right. Uh, the Black Death was not the only uh, example. And whenever this happened, humanity was helpless. People flocked to their um, temples and synagogues and churches and mosques to, play, to pray to God, save us, but they didn't know what to do themselves. Right. We have tools. Uh, we have yeah. tools. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it's not an insurance, no, it's, it doesn't mean that there won't be anything like it, right. but we are no longer helpless. Okay. And it's the same with war, there are still wars going around, but we no longer think that this is a necessary evil, and maybe when, when in, at the end of time, when Christ's second coming, there'll be peace, no. We now think if you make wise decisions, if you take the right, the right uh, actions, you can prevent war, and indeed, today, for the first time in history, more people commit suicide than are killed by human violence. More people die in car accidents. More people die from obesity, right. from eating too much, right. than, they, than from human violence. Uh, there is still a long way to go in terms of overcoming human violence, but the achievement over the last few decades have been really amazing. And I think that we need to acknowledge this achievement because if we don't, it gives people the pessimistic notion mm. that, well, violence is part of human nature, there is nothing to do it's about it. Doggy dog uh, world. Yeah, you know, whatever, so yeah. what do you want us to do? But I mean, worldwide, though, we do see this kind of rise of, uh, it seems, recently, xenophobia, sort of, you know, authoritarian leadership mm -hmm. in Turkey, now in America, you know. Yes. Russia, etc. Right? Yeah, in, in Israel. Do you, do you see that as historically sort of retrograde? Like that's that's an earlier stage of human consciousness. Like we're on the whole, we've evolved beyond that, but we're mm. kind of going backward. Or it is a retrograde movement, mm. uh, not just because it it increases the chances of war and conflict, but above all because the major problems we face in the 21st century are all global threats. Right. And you cannot do anything about them just on the national level. Right. It's very clear in the case of global warming, no nation can solve it by itself. And it's not a coincidence that most people who deny climate change are nationalists because they know they can't do anything on the, on the basis of the nation. So uh, the solution is just to deny the problem. But it's not just climate change. It's also the dangers of technological disruption. Okay. If you think, for example, about bioengineering and engineering babies and, and superhumans, right, right. and if you think about artificial intelligence pushing humans out of the job market, these are global problems. If a, you can't solve them on the level of the nation state, let's say the United States have, has a ban on all genetic engineering on human beings. Right. This is not going to help if China or South Korea or North Korea have no such ban, particularly because this is a high-risk, high-gain technology, and nobody would like to stay behind. Right. If the Chinese are making immense progress in genetically engineering humans, the Americans cannot afford to stay behind, so they will break their own ban. If you're worried about genetically engineering humans, you must think on a global level. So you say that, you know, here is where we are and that likely the project, the upcoming projects are going to be trying to do, you know, on the global scale. Yeah, upgrading humans to God. We're going to be basically. trying to upgrade humans to God, like defeat death, 
engineer happiness in some way or other pharmaceutically or, or nanotechnologically and then uh, and then upgrade humans to gods then you kind of then you go to a project prediction of sort of where where we may be headed in terms of a religion I, religious idea you call dataism mm -hmm. and I, what I can't tell is whether, you know, I was thinking a lot about, as I was reading, I was thinking about Charles Dickens's uh, Christmas Carol and the ghost of mm. Christmas future, right? Mm -hmm. Who comes and says, like, here's what's going to happen if you don't, right? Yes. But I couldn't tell, like, because I feel an ambivalence from you, like, whether on the one hand it's like you want to caution us about where we might be headed, mm -hmm. or whether you also believe that, like, this is probably where we are headed. You know, it seems mm -hmm. like the, both of those things are going on at the same time in the book. Because there are things we can be quite certain about. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, we can be quite certain that we will see artificial intelligence outperforming humans in more and more tasks right. over, the, over the next few decades. And it's unrealistic to believe that we can just have a ban on machine learning and artificial, right. it won't work. So this is kind of a prediction. But I don't think that anything is inevitable in terms of the social and political and, and, and religious consequences right. of such a technology. Uh, every technology can be used to build very different kinds of societies and it, there is nothing inevitable about that. If you look back to the 20th century, right. so you have the technologies of the Industrial Revolution. You have electricity and radio and cars and trains, but they don't determine a single social outcome. Right. You could use trains and electricity to build a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. Right. The trains don't tell you what to do with it. <laughs> and it's the same with AI or nanotechnology or bioengineering. We could use them to build very different kinds of societies. And we have ethical and political decisions to make about it. Right. I mean, is your sense, is history any good predictor of the statistical likelihood that we will work together on a global level towards something ethically positive mm -hmm. for humanity or not? <laughs> or whether we'll, you know, default to selfish, competitive, you know... Uh, it's impossible to say. I mean, <laughs> right. uh, you have some very good examples from history like nuclear weapons, right. and you have some very bad examples. And humans are very unpredictable, and the one thing you learn as a historian is never to underestimate human stupidity. Yes. Even if a course of action is obviously the most rational right. for humans to take, that it doesn't mean that this is the course of action humans will actually adopt. I, I also got the sense uh, that you may be deeply angry about the way we deal with animals mm. as a species. Yes. Is that, <laughs> that that's accurate? That's true. Yeah. I think we are mistreating animals on an immense scale. I mean, billions and billions of animals, especially in, in industrial farming. Right. All the cows and pigs and chickens and so forth that we basically treat as machines right. for producing milk and meat and eggs in complete disregard that these are sentient beings who have sensations, emotions, they can feel pain, they can feel pleasure, they can feel fear and anger and love and so forth. Right. They have a different emotional world than human beings, but they still have an emotional world. Right. And uh, the way we treat them, we just ignore this completely. 
Yeah, and you sort of uh, at least partially blame the consciousness philosophers and cognitive scientists for those who argue that, well, essentially what's going on is biochemical reactions in the brains of pigs mm -hmm. and cows, and we can't really treat that as consciousness. I was thinking while I was reading that those are sort of they can be related, but in a way they're, they're, they're separate questions. That is to say, if we don't know yet, if Daniel Dennett or others are still researching these things and trying to understand what is pig consciousness, we can still operate as if, you know, on the basis of like, well, I look at the pig and I hear it squealing and I might as well not create a situation no, and you see what's suffering. happening in, in its brain and in its system and yeah. of course we don't have any proof that other people have consciousness right, right. I mean for thousands of years philosophers have known it it's the, it's the problem right. of other minds right right the only mind the only consciousness you can be certain of is your own you can't be certain of the consciousness of, of other people right and I think today there is a widespread consensus among the relevant sciences that the weight of the scientific evidence tells us that all mammals, all birds, and at least some reptiles and fish have minds, they have consciousness, they have uh, sensations and emotions, different sometimes from humans. Some are identical, right. some are different, but they definitely have consciousness in an emotional world. So you argue, you know, you say, and I found this pretty compelling, that you know, if you're looking for uh, an example of how upgraded humans might treat non-upgraded humans, or how perhaps if we ever make general artificial intelligence mm -hmm. will treat us, look at the way we treat animals, and that may actually give you some idea. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of dataism. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this idea, you, you argue that essentially humanity and humanism will become irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what dataism yes, I, I, is? Like, it, it's a big issue, a big subject. Yeah, just in a so small way. In a space, small yeah. way, the main thing is that once you have enough data and once you have enough computing power, right. you can create an algorithm that understands you better than you understand yourself. And once this happens, authority shifts away from humans to algorithms. Over the last centuries, we came to see human feelings and human choices right. as the highest authority about everything. In politics, you ask the voter. In economics, the customer is always right. right. In ethics, human feelings are, the, are the, 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 the supreme judge of ethical questions. And now we are reaching the point when very soon the Amazon algorithm will know me and my feelings and my preferences better than even I know them. And then it can not only make predictions and, ma and manipulate me, it can actually make choices for me. And let's start with a very simple example. Right. Uh, what book to read? Previously, people say, oh, you, you just follow the recommendation of your friends or of your own emotions and feelings. But now you go online to the Amazon bookshop and an algorithm pops up and tells, oh, I know you. I know what books you liked and disliked in the past, right. and based on my statistics, I make recommendations for you. Yeah. But this is still very primitive. If you read a book on Kindle, you should know that while you read the book, right. for the first time in history, the book is also reading you. Kindle is following you. Right. It knows which pages you read fast, which pages you read slow, and when you stop reading. Yeah. And it gives a Kindle, which means Amazon, a much better idea of who you are 
and what you like. Right. Now the next stage is to connect Kindle to face recognition software, which already exists, and then Kindle knows when you smile, when you cry, when you're angry, when you're bored. <laughs> the final step, which is technically feasible, is to connect Kindle to biometric sensors on or inside your body, and then Kindle, which means Amazon, will know the exact emotional impact of every sentence you read in a book. <laughs> every sentence you read, yeah. what does it do to your blood pressure, to your brain activity? By the time you finish the book, let's say you read Tolstoy's War and Peace. Right. By the time you finish War and Peace, you forgot most of it. But Amazon will never forget anything. Mm -hmm. By the time you finish War and Peace, Amazon knows exactly who you are, what is your personality type, and how to press your emotional buttons. <laughs> and based on that, Amazon can make decisions not only about which books to recommend to you, but about far more important things like whom to date or what to study or whom to vote for on the election day. Right, right, right. No, it's very interesting. I mean, so at first blush, I want to say that this is sort of, you know, Amazon's understanding of me via what I'm and how I'm reading on Kindle is in some ways akin to you know, the relationship between the score of Don Giovanni and the subjective experience of listening to John, Don Giovanni, like mm -hmm. looking at the notes, notes on the page, in a sense, you know, isn't the thing. However, I guess it becomes asymptotically no, closer but and Amazon closer. Amazon will look not yeah. at the score, right. it will look at your internal biochemical system. Right. I mean, as you sit there listening to John Giovanni, yeah, yeah. Amazon or, what, or Apple or whatever, will be following your heart, right. your heartbeat, your blood pressure, your testosterone level, your adrenaline level. Right. And based on that, it will be able to tell what is the emotional impact of every note that the pianist or the violinist is, is, is mm. making. What does it do to your heart? And as that, you know, becomes sort of asymptotically closer and cl like more and more detailed, then I suppose it becomes yeah, as you say, not only indistinguishable from my own experience, but even more uh, higher resolution es than my own experience. Especially yeah. because we forget most <laughs> right. of what we experience. Right. I mean, by the time you finish listening to Don Giovanni or finish reading the book, you forget most of what you experienced. Right. But Amazon will have the data. To, for algorithms to take over from humans, mm. they won't have to be perfect. Right. They will just have to be better than humans. And that is not so very difficult because humans make terrible decisions sure. often sure. about the most important things in life. Right. I mean, how many people choose to study something or to marry somebody and, uh, and years later say, oh, this was such a stupid decision. <laughs> and so Amazon will just have to be better than that right. in order for authority to shift from me to the Amazon algorithm. I've thought in the past that we may have sort of subcultures of resistance that sort of prize human imperfection mm -hmm. in the future, right? I mean, that, you know, that react to this kind of thing and say, you know what, like, is there not something terrible lost mm. when we lose all of this unpredictability of human nature? No, the, 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 the algorithms even have a solution for that. <laughs> I mean, people say, oh, there is something valuable about every now and then randomly choosing a book, right. which I would never have, have, have chosen on the basis of my past likes. Right. And this is what statisticians often call noise. 
they, they would say there is a certain level of noise Built or in. certain level of mm. serendipity, which is helpful. Right. So the Amazon algorithm, choosing books, for example, it can, you can adjust the exact level of serendipity you want. Right. You can, for example, based on, on statistics, reach the conclusion that 6% serendipity is the optimum. Right. Less than that, you, you tend to, to get stuck in an echo chamber. More than that, many of the books you read you don't like. 6%, this is the, <laughs> the, the ideal level of serendipity. Right. And you can adjust the Amazon algorithm to provide you with exactly 6% of serendipity in the books you read or the people you date. Right. You, you, you suggest, or the scary possibility that you suggest is that dataism could essentially make humans irrelevant as opposed to saying, well, we're not very good at this or that, but let's sort of like enhance you say initially we will do that, that it's going to be about enhancing humanity? Yeah, but th there are two trajectories. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, are the, there is the trajectory of let's enhance humans yeah. uh, and make superhumans. Right. And then there is a trajectory of, oh, humans are irrelevant. They can't do anything better than AI. So humans are out of the picture. But who's and saying that? The AI is saying that? Or the, like... Microsoft uh, the is saying that? The economy or? is saying that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it's in, it's in the end what the system needs from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you have a self-driving car that drives better than humans, right. then why do you need taxi drivers and, and truck drivers? Yeah, yeah. If you have robots that fight better than soldiers, why do you need human soldiers? I mean, in the end, when, when we talk about humans becoming useless, mm. it's not useless from the viewpoint of their mother it's useless from the viewpoint of the economic and military system. But then the question is, right, this goes back to the sort of global viewpoint thing. You know, is it possible for humanity to say, okay, therefore, like, this is good. Like, we don't actually need taxi drivers anymore. Yes. Maybe it was boring to drive a taxi. Maybe, you know, people can walk around like they did in, some people did in Athens and philosophize all mm -hmm. day or whatever. Yeah. Or not, you know, or yeah, do we just chew up everyone and spit them out, you know. I don't I'm not saying <laughs> that uh, it's, it's all bad. Yeah, yeah. There are many good things about these developments. If you make better choices in life, what's wrong with that? If you have better health, what's wrong with that? Uh, if, you know, today you have hundreds of millions of people right. without any medical care mm. uh, because doctors are expensive. Right. If you replace human doctors with AI doctors on your smartphones, which is very close, right. you could provide very cheap healthcare for people in developing countries that today have no healthcare. Right. Right? That's wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, like every major technological change, it's not 100% good or bad, but it does raise a lot of very deep philosophical questions that humans have been thinking about for thousands of years and my impression is that, like, the time is up. Like, philosophers had thousands of years <laughs> right. to figure out the meaning of life and human freedom and all these questions, and the time is up. Uh, because the engineers are taking over. Yeah. And philosophers are very patient people. They have all the time in the world. Let's mm -hmm. discuss free will. You have thousands of years. You have no, un no definitive answers. That's okay. Right. Engineers are impatient people. Mm. They want answers tomorrow morning or next year. Right. And now what we'll see is more and more questions being transferred from the philosophy department to the engineering department. Right. And whatever wisdom we have gained as a species in thousands of years, 
we'll, we'll see that in the next few decades. Got you, yeah. No, so the question is sort of what's good, you know, knowing whatever we may know about what is good for, for humans, like if we are, if humans are no longer going to be needed in this or that or the other arena, mm -hmm. are we going to be wise enough to like give people something to do, you know, and take care of the, the people that, you know, like, like I often think that we have this, we have abundance in many human areas and yet we still have terrible economic inequality and so forth. Mm -hmm. y you would like to think, or I don't know, I would like to think that there's the possibility of saying, you know, what can we do for the species? But, you know, one doesn't see as much of that as it would be nice to. Uh, no, because, you know, <laughs> the, 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 one of the most fundamental patterns of the human mind yeah. is that the basic common human reaction to achievement is not pleasure uh, and it's not satisfaction, it's craving for more. Right. No matter what you achieve, the basic reaction, oh, I want more. Right. And this is why humans have gained so much power over thousands of years, because nothing ever satisfied us. Right. But it's also the reason why we are not significantly happier than we were in the Stone Age, despite all our power. And in the 21st century, we might gain divine abilities but it's likely that we will be very dissatisfied gods. So going back to the value of a certain amount of randomness, let us, let's go to the surprise video clips and mm. see where, where, where they unexpectedly take us. Um, okay. Let's start with Daniel Dennett, mm. who was here recently. This is on evolution, the evolution of cultural memes. Okay. Richard Dawkins coined the term meme in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. And what he proposed was that human culture was composed, at least in part, of elements, units, that were like genes in that they were copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And it was the differential copying, the differential replication of these items, these memes, that accounted for the excellent design of so much in human culture. This is a very repugnant and offensive idea to many people, especially in the humanities. They wanted to hang on to the idea of the godlike genius creator who, out of sheer conscious, brilliant comprehension, makes all these wonderful things, whether they're poems or bridges or whatever, he was saying, well, yes, people do make amazing things, but if you look at projects in detail, you see that they couldn't do that if they hadn't filled their head with all these informational things, which are like genes, which are also information, but they're not passed down through the germline. They're not passed down through, through the sperm and the egg. You don't get them with your genes. You get them from the ambient culture, from your parents, from your peers, from the society in which you're raised. It requires perception. A lot of people think, well, wait a minute, there's a huge disanalogy here. Uh, genes are DNA. What, what, what's the DNA of memes? And the first thing you have to uh, appreciate is, no, genes aren't DNA. Genes are the information carried by the DNA. Genes are no more DNA than poems are made of ink. Once you get used to thinking of genes as not DNA, but the information carried by the patterns of the nucleotides in DNA, then you can see that there really is a nice parallel. 
Well then, what's playing the role of DNA in the land of culture? What are the physical implementations? Well, they're wonderfully various. There is ink on paper. There's uh, lines carved into stones. There's uh, lines drawn in the sand. There's skywriting. And of course, there's what we're doing right now. There's audible language. I'm fundamentally very, I, I like this idea very much. Mm. I would, though, say there is another big difference between memes and genes, that in human culture, it's incorrect to think that, uh, you know, the big stories are made of these bits of information that we, we compile together. In human culture, stories come before the facts. Stories come before the bits. I mean, it's not that you have lots of little bits and then you, you, you build the story out of them. Right. In the vast majority of cases, this, the big story comes first. Mm -hmm. And what you teach little children often is, is the big stories. And all, the, all human cooperation, all human institutions are based on stories and not on facts or not on little ideas. Okay. And this is something that especially in, in, in the scientific community, people often miss. Many scientists have this idea, this false idea, that, oh, if people don't believe in climate change or if people don't believe in evolution or whatever, right. we just have to give them these facts or these statistics or this example and they will be convinced. Right. And it doesn't work because humans think in stories. And you cannot, in most cases, you cannot convince people by presenting them with facts. Aren't the stories composed in a sense of subunits? I mean, the way it goes over historically, like, you know, I'm imagining the way a religion is mm -hmm. born. One person observes something, says something to someone else, oh, the sun is angry, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the crop is dying, you know, whatever. And then over time, that sort of amount accrues into a, a, a story, like the, the son is called blah, 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 mm -hmm. he does this and, and so on, and develops over time. It, and it's composed of subparts which operate sort of like facts. I mean, mm -hmm. even if they're not actual facts, like they are units of meaning that people believe and that add up to, to a compelling story. And I would, I mean, I agree with you that the, the story is probably the most compelling mode of transmission as far as it can get a whole mm -hmm. culture working on the same level. But so I, I don't know, like, is that not, do you not see it that way or? Well, it, it, there is definitely something in that, but um, in many cases it doesn't work like that. I mean, it's not that you first have these little bits and then somebody adds something and some, then you have a synthesis and, and no, I mean, it starts with big stories. G give me an example, like what's a, what's a, cause I, I want to understand, I just mm -hmm. want to make sure. It's a bit like what Kuhn says about, uh, about philosophy of science. Okay. Says about scientific paradigm shifts. That uh, it happens on a large scale. I mean, nothing changes, nothing changes, and then suddenly there is a tipping point and everything changes. And when you look, for example, say 100 years ago, 1917, right. you had the communist revolution in Russia. Okay. And the Russian state moved from believing in the story about the divine right of kings and the Tsar and God as the source of political authority right. overnight to believing that the common people and the workers are the source of authority and there is no God. 
Okay. And there was, it, it was not a slow accumulation of small changes that led from one story to the other. Okay. It was a very abrupt and all-encompassing revolution. Of course, it, it wasn't overnight. Right. Uh, there was, uh, there, there, there was, and there were like minor peasant revolts, probably historically, that then you know, I'll say it even even more starkly. I mean, yeah, I like the, the idea very much yeah. of memetics and the meme and so forth. So far, as a historian, I didn't see anybody cash the, the check. <laughs> okay. I mean, you have this check of oh, if we just start talking about memes and memetics suddenly you'll really be able to understand historical and cultural change much better. Uh -huh. And this sounds very attractive, but I haven't seen anybody actually doing it. Right. That given an explanation for the communist revolution in terms of memes, which is better than everything we have had so far. I mean, yes, cultural changes, historians have been talking about it for, for centuries. Right. There is nothing new there. Right, right. I want to see a book or an mm. article gotcha. which gives me a profound new insight into the communist revolution based on, on the ideas of memes yeah. okay. that I did not get from Hobsbawm and from the, all the previous historians that did not need this concept of meme. Uh, I'm see. not saying it's impossible. Uh, sure. I'm just saying that as of February 2017, <laughs> I still haven't read the profound historical analysis based on the idea of meme. It's all theory. Right. It's very little actual uh, practice. I see what you're saying. So I'd like to talk a little bit about though how this overlaps with your the idea of algorithms, the way you talk about them in the book, because you know I, I know a bit about what an algorithm is in a computer, mm -hmm. but you, you know you you were using it much more broadly yes. to refer to units. I thought of cultural meaning and human behavior and mm -hmm. so on. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what, yeah, like how, like, yeah, I mean, how algorithms pervade human life? Yes, I mean, yeah. algorithms, we, we know them from computers, yeah. but you know, you can have an algorithm to make a, a, a soup and you can have an algorithm to run an army right. or to run a hospital. And what you see is that over thousands of years, humans have been constructing institutions, algorithmic institutions, based on a step-by-step -step process okay. of what to do. So it's things like training in the army, that how to fire a musket. In the 17th century, you have the drill master break down the process of how to fire a musket right. into 40 different uh, digital movements. Okay. And then you have these recruits who come to the, uh, to the drilling field, and day after day after day, the drill masters teach them the 40 steps of how to fire a musket. Okay. And then you think about a hospital. And it, it functions also, I mean, uh, a big hospital, right. it functions like an algorithm. Right. Like you enter the reception room and somebody comes and asks you to fill a form. Right. And based on what you write in the form, they give you an initial testing, like check your blood pressure or your, or your whatever. And based on that, they send you there, they send you here, and it all follows these rule books and regulations, and the idea is that it doesn't matter so much who are the people you encounter, who is the secretary, who right. is the nurse, who is the doctor. As long as they follow the algorithmic process, 
the system works. I see. And and the algorithm, would you say that the algorithms, like it seems to me that they, they develop over time through feedback loops. Like mm -hmm. somebody tries something, it doesn't work. They say, okay, this works. Like, the, okay, these are the three steps. Then a human probably messes it up or it mm -hmm. doesn't fit the paradigm. And then the algorithm has to be revised again. And then they become more and more complex yes. over time. Yeah. So, is like our stories algorithms like is do you, I, I can't recall whether you say that in the Not book, so but much. like stories in the sense of say Christianity or dataism or whatever. Like. Stories uh, they follow a narrative logic, mm. not the logic of, of an algorithm. This is why people, most people, find algorithms so alien and alienating and impossible to, to comprehend. Right. Uh, because Homo sapiens thinks in stories right. mentally. I mean, you can say that our brain functions algorithmically, but when it comes to our experiences, we experience the world in terms of stories. Narrative, we experience yeah. our lives in terms of stories and not in terms of an algorithmic, algorithmic process. I mean, I guess like in the grand stories that define human culture, there are algorithms embedded in them. Like mm -hmm. if you're a good person, then you'll go to heaven yes. kind of thing, right? So, so the story itself is not an algorithm, but no, it, the story it may is, contain it, it usually algorithms. follows, this happened, and then, then like, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the most successful stories ever, the once was a woman who was a virgin, right. and she gave birth to, to a man, <laughs> right. and this man could do anything uh, he wanted, and then some bad people killed this man, but he got back to life and went up to heaven, right. and if you believe this story, after you die, you will also join that man in heaven and live there happily forever. So this is the, one of the top five stories of human history. It sounds incredible that this story is one of the top five stories <laughs> right. in human history, but it is. So and it's it's absolutely you know it's it's amazing. So algorithms have to function according to like laws of causality and logic, perhaps, but stories do not. I mean, like a story like that mm -hmm. makes no sense. Like there is oh, no. It makes sense to billions of people. <laughs> I know, I know. But I mean, it doesn't make sense according to sort of causal logic. As well, well I guess there is a causal logic if you believe that yeah, God I mean, can do whatever He wants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 There is some causal logic there. There is no evidence so much, but <laughs> right, there is. Right. 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 Yeah. Interesting. Okay, I think that's a good place to draw a line, and let's see what the next okay. surprise video is, huh? Okay, so Lawrence Levy on mindfulness, the middle way, and Pixar. The paradigm that's driving people the most, which is the performance paradigm to succeed, no one is as, seems to be as interested in the secular scientific proof that that's good for you. So, you know, so we're on this rush to sort of succeed and work 24-7 and make all this money without any, it, and it's all on faith. And not only is there no proof that it's good for us, there's actually more scientific evidence that suggests that it isn't. But when it comes to meditation, then we want the proof. So that, to me, is an interesting dynamic. You can imagine, perhaps, that there are two people inside of us. And so one of the people inside of us, you could think of as a bureaucrat. And the, the role of the bureaucrat is to function, is to function well in the, in the world, to make sure we get up on time, that we get to our, you know, catch a plane on time, to make sure you know, there'll be dinner at the table at night and we have enough money in the bank and all of these requirements that we need in order to be 
sort of successful at functioning in the world. And then there's another person inside of us that you could think of as like an artist or a free spirit. And that free spirit just wants to live and love and laugh and create and be and enjoy and, you know, and just experience all the richness and possibilities of life. And what the middle way would say is that if we get stuck in either one of those places, we subject ourselves to uh, sort of stress and agitation. You know, at Pixar, I, it was a story company, so I go for a few years at Pixar and I learn, well, it's all about story. That's what I learned. And then I go off and study Buddhist philosophy for 10 years, and I come to the scintillating conclusion that it's all about story. We function in a story. We have a story in, in our minds about what it means, you know, to be a man, what it means to be a woman, a son, a daughter, an employee, you know, we, and we get stuck in them. And that stuckness uh, often produces a lot of stress and agitation. Really the goal of meditation is, the, is to open the door so we can go beyond our stories. What the middle way is about is a philosophy of harmonizing these two things within us. And you know, I saw in Pixar a metaphor for that because it really is a company that succeeded because it was able to harmonize these two, these two ideas. Where would you like to begin? Uh, I, I practice meditation for, for two hours every day. That is, yeah, I knew that about you. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. do Vipassana meditation. I agree with a lot of <laughs> what we've just heard. I d also definitely agree with this idea that humans get caught up in the stories. We have a story about ourselves, we have a story about the country, we have a story about the world. Right. And this story d is not necessarily true. It's often a fiction, right. but it dominates us and controls us in our, in our lives. And it's very important to be able to differentiate fiction from reality. Um, this is also uh, how would I uh, define one of the main purposes of meditation. Uh, what I, I do in, in Vipassana is what's real? What is reality right. in contrast to the stories that the mind generates and tells about everything? You constantly have like this uh, like you watch television yeah. and something happens and uh, you have this commentator constantly commentates and explains to, oh, this happens and this happens. So we also have it in, inside ourselves. We have this inner commentator which constantly weaves stories and very often completely fictional, but we believe it. Right. And meditation is to a large extent about shutting up this, this commentator and just observe reality as it is without any attempt to create a story out of it. It's very difficult, it's very, very powerful. About doing it in, in work, like in corporations, right. like in, in Pixar, I think the big danger there is that the bureaucrat tends to be more powerful in the long run than the poet. I mean, the, I mean I'm, I'm generally in favor of you know, big corporations starting meditation programs and, and so forth, right. but I am apprehensive of uh, they are hijacking it, at least in some cases, to for the um, traditional purposes. Enhanced productivity. In, in and, the end, yeah, enhancing yeah. productivity. And not the much deeper purposes of really understanding reality on its own terms, even if that would mean decreasing productivity. I mean, the big question is right. what happens if you send your staff to this mindfulness session 
and it increases <laughs> productivity. What do you do then? Right, right. What if they come back saying, you know, I, I spend way too much of my day answering typing emails. and answering emails? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then of course there are productivity gurus who say that like by answering fewer emails you can be even more productive. You know, they're, they're, I don't <laughs> like I don't like the way the, 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 the direction this is going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there is a much deeper truth right. in the practice of meditation right. than increasing productivity. Somewhere along the way, the trajectory is part. I mean, you can, uh, yeah, I'm very much in, in favor, and I think that to some extent, yes, it can, it can coexist. You can increase productivity uh, through meditation, and uh, it will also make people uh, more calm, more happy, more uh, have a better understanding of themselves. Right. But in the long term, it's not the same thing. I think you should be in it for the right reasons yeah. and not for the productivity reasons. It goes back to something we were talking about earlier, right? Which is like, what if a hundred years from now we looked at the situation, like the global infrastructure, the what the computers can do, whatever, and we said, you know what? We could feed everybody reasonably. We could like even distribute X amount of money to each person. Mm -hmm. So if they need to buy something, they can do it. And then the people who want to be like extremely extra productive can go do that. We're very, I think, not we, I am not scared of that idea. I think that's wonderful. But I think that like, I don't know, Western society, particularly as driven by Silicon Valley, would find that idea extremely threatening. The idea that like maybe my work week needs to be three days long, you know, <laughs> right? It's sort of a direction of thought. I mean, do you think humanity could or, sh or should come to those kinds of considerations? Might do if... Yeah, I, I think that... Um Mm, released from the need to produce in order to sustain yourself, mm. amazing new possibilities are opened before humankind. Right. But I wouldn't necessarily trust most humans to make the best of, of these possibilities. Right. At least historically, we have made, not always, but quite often, we have made such bad decisions <laughs> about what to do with our power, right. that simply increasing human power further, right. that would not be enough to guarantee wise decisions. Maybe the machines that understand us better than ourselves can teach us to make better decisions about what to do with ourselves. Maybe, <laughs> but this is a very, very <laughs> optimistic. optimistic gamble. I mean, if you get it wrong, pff, you yeah, really yeah. get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I would still tend to trust the wisdom of the ages over the machines when it comes to such questions. But then, again, most humans, uh, I mean, as a historian, I know that you should never underestimate human stupidity and human blindness. Right. Um, humans are very wise. They sometimes make very wise decisions. But just because something is the right thing to do doesn't guarantee that this is what humans will choose to do. Yuval Noah Harari, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. This was a great conversation. Thank you. I Appreciate enjoyed it. it. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for being with us. If you haven't had a chance to do it or if you're new to the show, 
please take just a couple minutes and rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. I don't know if there's a rating on there. I'm not really sure. But wherever you listen, it would be great if you could rate or review us. Uh, it really helps people discover the show. And I also want to reiterate that I've been getting a lot of emails from people and comments on Twitter. My email is jason at bigthink.com or you can find my website jasongotts.com and send me a message through there. And I've been having really interesting conversations with people who agree or disagree with ideas on the show, but who are uh, wonderful to talk to. So please feel free to reach out to me. And we'll be back next week with a really, really interesting conversation with Gish Jen, who is a Chinese-American author who's written about the culture gap between the East and the West. I hope you can join us. 